Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Shinzo Abe, Japan's former prime minister, was assassinated last Friday. As PM and previous president of the long-ruling Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, he was one of Japan's most powerful political figures. So who was Shinzo Abe? And what about the LDP that has been in power almost continuously since its founding, aided by the U.S. in 1955? Joining us today is Tim Shorrock, a decades-long investigative journalist and critical commentator on U.S. foreign policy, U.S. national security and intelligence concerns, and East Asian affairs, primarily coverage of South Korea and North Korea and Japan relations. He's... We're going to be talking about the uh, Abe and the LDP. His work, has, uh, Shark's work, has appeared widely in numerous publications, among them The Nation, Salon, Daily Beast, Mother Jones, The Progressive, Foreign Policy and Focus, and Asia Times. He's been interviewed on Democracy Now!, NPR's Fresh Air, The Huff Post Live, and other outlets, including of course, W-O-R-T. Tim Sherrock, welcome back to W-R-T. Thank you very much. So let's start right, you know, let's jump into this. That is, who was Shinzo Abe? The mainstream press this past week has described him primarily or merely as an influential conservative politician. How would you characterize him? Uh, I characterize him as the most right-wing Japanese leader uh, since 1945, uh, in part a creation of the United States, and uh, a leading militarist who has been spent his career trying to get rid of the peace constitution imposed on Japan by the U.S. occupation and make uh, Japan into what he calls, used to call a normal nation that would be able to deploy its military overseas like it did during the 1930s and 1940s. Um, and in short, you know, he's, a, he's the most extreme rightist ever to hold power in Japan. And he, is in, he was in control of the largest faction of the Liberal Democratic Party. And to me, it's just both astonishing and shameful to see how much he has been praised by the entire political establishment from people who were, you know, Democratic uh, leaders to Republicans to the whole gamut of the U.S. politics seems to love this guy and doesn't say anything about his rightist past or his denials of uh, Japanese war crimes during World War II. I understand that Abe was the heir of a right-wing political dynasty with powerful roots in Japan's World War II past, 
and uh, and the early Cold War in East Asia. Give our listeners some idea of that background, some context, if you would. Well, his grandfather, had he is praised mightily and tried to model himself after, was a guy named uh, Nobusuke Kishi. And Kishi was the Minister of Commerce in the Tojo cabinet that declared war on the United States in 1941. And uh, he, Kishi ran the Japanese colony in Manchuria and Manchu, called Manchukuo, uh, Manchuria part of China, just north of northern Korea. And uh, he was, uh, after World War II, uh, Kishi was, was imprisoned for a while and declared a class A, a war criminal by the United States. And uh, he, 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 he escaped trial uh, in the first few years of the occupation, the United States under General MacArthur, you know, uh, tried and actually succeeded in, in, some, in some basic ways to, to, to make Japan more democratic, gave women the right to vote, uh, gave unions the right to organize collectively, and um, made some enormous changes to, to Japanese politics. Uh, and um, after about two years, and they also started to uh, dismantle the wartime conglomerates that were called Zaibatsu, they had financed and you know, made the weapons for Japan during the war. But after about two years, uh, the, reverse, the, the occupation reforms were reversed, uh, it, it, partly as a result of the, you know, the, the Cold War was beginning to heat up, and U.S. planners and, and officials began to uh, try to, instead of uh, penalizing Japan for its part in the war and trying to you know, destroy the remnants of militarism in Japan, they turned to making Japan an ally in the Cold War against the Soviet Union and communist movements in Asia, and so took a lot of the people, brought a lot of the people that had been imprisoned as war criminals, released them, and then and 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 made, you know, started supporting them as politicians, future politicians for Japan, and this is what happened with Kishi Abe's grandfather. Kishi was, you know, uh, you know, was given a bill of health by the U.S. occupation, and then he became uh, promote. He was promoted by Richard Nixon, and uh, he was brought to the U.S. to, you know, introduce Americans to this new Japanese leader. Uh, well, of course, no one told the Americans what he'd been doing during the war, um, and and Kishi became was eventually became prime minister. But during this time, when the Liberal Democratic Party was formed, uh, it, the the CIA pumped millions of dollars to create that party, which is still the ruling party in Japan, and it basically it's been in control of Japanese politics since 1955. A very very long long period, uh, you know, to be in control. Uh, but it's uh, uh, Abe became, uh, you know, be, be joined politics and you know was be, you know rose up in this Liberal Democratic Party, and he eventually became Japan's longest serving uh, prime minister. But his background is with this very right wing faction of Japanese politics that was 
blessed after the war by the United States and welcomed as partners in, in the Cold War, and their power was greatly strengthened uh, during the Korean War when the United States intervened you know, very heavily militarily in Korea, and Japan, that by buying all many of its weapons and many of the, much of the material that was used to fight the war in Korea, uh, the U.S. revitalized the Japanese economy. And, it, and, and, and it's astonishing to see actually the figures about that. But the Japanese economy was basically reborn as a result of the Korean War. Uh, and even in the official U.S. State Department histories now, you can see statements such as, you know, uh, Japan was in deep trouble uh, in 1950, economically and politically, and then Korea came along and saved us. That's, they really say that. Uh, and that was a godsend for the Japanese economy and for the right-wing politicians that were beginning to rule Japan. Uh, stick, sticking with the LDP for a sec, uh, you know, in, in preparing for the program, of course, I... I learned that um, that CIA money and assistance to the LDP uh, also was tied to uh, uh, assistance from the Yakuza or Japanese mobs that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that the LDP had this relationship early on for some time to these or organized crime syndicates and gangs uh, and also used or enlisted the Yakuza to... Uh, uh, to crush anti-war and labor protests by opposition, especially coming from the left. Talk, talk about that a little bit, that, that, that continuing that this is not just a conservative party, it's not just a political party in our, in our sense of the term, uh, but one deeply tied to, um, uh, historically tied to the Japanese underworld. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the uh, reverse occupation. Uh, an essential element of that was crushing the Japanese left, which is quite pop, which is quite strong and very popular then. Particularly crushing its its unions. Uh, a lot of people don't know or have forgotten that actually in the immediate post-war period, the Japanese labor movement was very strong, led by communists who'd been let out of political prisons. Uh, and um, so, you know, part of part of the occupation's turn at that time was to crush the left. And so, uh, who better to do that than these these gangs that were allied with these with the right wing politics? And the you know the Yakuza are very very strong, and were became like kind of like stormtroopers that were used by the. LDP and the Japanese government to to help crush the unions and also to break up demonstrations uh, when people began protesting uh, against uh, well the protests really began during the Korean War because uh, you know after Japan was bombed mercilessly by the United States you know destroying so many cities in Japan during during the at the end of World War II. You know, five years later, the U.S. at you know intervening in Korea also bombed you know North Korea and South Korea's terrible bombing, and people in Japan were very aware of this. And and during as 
the U.S. got more and more involved in Vietnam, its bases in Japan, you know, which had been used to bomb Korea, began to be bombed, used to bomb Vietnam and attack Vietnam. And so Japanese citizens really rose up against this, and students and labor unions protested in the streets. This is when I was growing up. It was, you know, the biggest demonstrations I ever saw were in the 1960s, anti-war demonstrations. And so they deployed these Yakuza. They would come out and, you know, beat up, you know, intervene in, in strikes, intervene in labor disputes. Uh, and, and, and they were little shock troops to be used against these massive demonstrations. And, and so it's this kind of dark alliance that was formed between in the U.S., the CIA, and the right-wing elements uh, in, in Japan. And during that period, 50s, 60s, the CIA station in Japan was, was you know, one of the, its largest spots in the world. I mean, the CIA base at Atsugi Air Force Base was used for all kinds of intervention, uh, in, you know, counterinsurgency operations in Korea and around Asia. A uh, massive CIA structure was in Japan. Uh, I, I, I went to an American high school called the American School in Japan, and at one point I had this guide to uh, CIA officials around the world that was uh, distributed at that time by by East Germany, actually, but it was seen by the CIA as fairly accurate. And I, lo- I remember looking it up, and I found out about, I found that of my graduating class of 100 at the American School in Japan, at least 10 of my friends and my colleagues at the uh, classmates, their fathers were in the CIA. It was a huge presence in Japan. And um, it, it's, it's a very, it's a period of time that people, you know, it's sort of not not really covered here very much, uh, or people don't remember it. But you know, in Japan, uh, that movement was very strong until the left movement until uh, about 1970. You're listening to Tim Shurock, uh, investigative journalist, writer, author on covering uh, East Asia, Japan, and the Koreas primarily. We'll be opening up the phone lines at half past the hour at 608-256-2001, extension number nine. If you want to join us with a question, a comment, an observation, again, 608-256-2001, extension nine. Tim, let's return to Abe, to Shinzo Abe. Uh, Part of his political ascent was attributed to a kind of Japanese chauvinism or ultra-nationalism. Um, he had these long associations with anti-Korean and other xenophobic groups. Talk about that some, please. Well, it's, it's, I, I, I would caution to say it's not really uh, anti-Korean. It was, it, was more, it was like allied with the right wing in Korea, allied with a military that took over Korea in, in 1961. Uh, the, there was very close ties. You know, these Japanese conglomerates, that, the Zaibatsu that brought Japan into the war, you know, Japan, Korea was, it's, it, you know, Japan's largest colony, and it was right, it's right next door to Japan, right? So uh, you know, many of the corporations, uh, Mitsui, Mitsubishi, uh, had huge operations 
in Korea, you know, during the colonial period and through through World War II. And so uh, the the elements that were, you know, many of the, you know, when the South Korean government was created by the U.S. in the 40s, uh, it was created out of, you know, mostly people that served in the government were people who had been collaborators with Japanese colonialism uh, during during the 40s and, you know, through World War II. And uh, the military itself in South Korea, almost the whole entire high command of the South Korean military, uh, when it was created, grew during the Korean War and then afterwards, the high command had all been trained in the Japanese military during World War II. Uh, Park Chung-hee, the long-serving you know, dictator of South Korea, uh, was uh, trained in the Japanese military. And so there was you know, long ties between the South Korean military and these Japanese collaborators in Korea and these politicians like uh, if they were in the LDP and the Japanese corporations. So it's more of a relationship with the Korean right. Uh, but what they did was, you know, during during World War II, uh, you know, J- Japan forced many, many Koreans to come to Japan and work in the mines and factories uh, because the Japanese men were off doing, you know, in the war. And so they had all this forced labor in Korean labor in, in Japan. Many, you know, that's why so many Koreans died at Hiroshima and Nagasaki during the atomic bombs. Uh, but also they, as a lot of people know now, they kidnapped many women and forced them into prostitution, uh, having them, you know, serve Japanese soldiers at these places called comfort stations that were all over where Japan had its military in China, Korea, uh, you know, Okinawa, wherever, Southeast Asia, Pacific Islands. They had these comfort stations where these women were, you know, lived and were forced to be prostitutes for Japanese soldiers. And the, uh, you know, Koreans are still, uh, you know, angry about this in large part because Abe and his party and his uh, closest associates in that party continually, you know, have denied uh, that they've, you know, the extent of slave labor and and forced forced prostitution and have and have, you know, tried to, uh, you know, have, you know, lied about it. And, and just denied the whole the whole uh, what they what Japan did during the war, and uh, of course you know Abe is in his party is often criticized rightly for worshiping at the Yasukuni Shrine, which is where the, many of the Japanese dead from the war are buried. But buried there are also many of the war criminals who were eventually executed after the war. And this is seen throughout Asia as kind of a veneration of that World War II uh, you know, group of criminals who, who brought Japan into the war. And uh, it's, very hard, it's been very hard for Koreans to understand why Japanese 
you know, prime ministers and political leaders keep going there year after year to that shrine. And uh, so it's just, it's part of this long pattern of, you know, close ties with, you know, right wing elements, not only in Korea, but, you know, in, in Taiwan and uh, throughout, throughout Asia. Uh, Shinzo Abe, uh, uh, at the time of his rise to prominence, before his rise to prominence, really, was a special, became a special advisor to the group Nippon Kagi, uh, Japan's largest uh, ultra far-right non-governmental organization. Uh, Nippon Kagi, of course, claimed that Imperial Japan should be uh, lauded for liberating Asia from Western colonial powers during the war, that, uh, that the Tokyo War crimes tribunals were Ill illegitimate, that war crimes such as the 1937 Nanking massacre, or commonly referred to as the Rape of Nanking, uh, were exaggerated or fabricated. Talk about that. That is this, that it that there's that whole nexus of ideological formation um, that Abe was part of, uh, that he maintained, uh, and so on. You know, I came across an interesting statistic that in 2014, 15 out of 18 cabinet members in the Abe administration were Nippon Kagi members. Right, that's a pretty amazing figure, uh, but it it shows you the the, you know, the, the, the extreme rightist, fascist nature of, of 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 that party, and it you know these like I said these relationships, you know go 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 way back. Basically, the view of Nippon Kagi and these and these you know believers in in this these, these conservative believers in 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 Japan's you know power. Uh, wanting to restore its wartime power, basically they they they, as you said, they see, you know, their their colonization of Korea, their invasion of China, and the colonization of Manchuria in the area called Manchukuo during that time. They see that as you know very positive, and you know they really contributed to the growth of Asia and so on, and uh, they. The only mistake they th they think Japan made was to you know attack the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, so they they would like to restore uh, the Japanese, the, 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 basically restore the Japanese Empire, but under U.S. control and tutelage. So their whole their, their whole ideology is built around you know this 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 you know restore the Japanese state and respect Japan and its history, its long history, and and uh, they, they they just made a small error by attacking the United States. And if they hadn't done that, uh, you know, they, they could have remained powerful. And so the lesson is ally with the United States. And you know, after the war, basically, uh, after World War II, basically these these you know the LDP and the people that were supporting it. Uh, you know that they they decided okay, the U.S. is now in control. The U.S. is the imperial power now in Asia. We'll we'll ally with them and we'll will restore our might with this relationship with the United States. And so they you know pushed through these uh, military alliance. Um, you know they first uh, signed the U.S. signed a 
a peace treaty with Japan uh, in 1952 at the height of the Korean War, but it was not a treaty that involved the other allied powers like the Soviet Union and China and uh, England. Only the U.S. signed a separate peace with Japan, and part of that military agreement was that Japanese forces would stay in Japan, you know, indefinitely, that there would be this permanent presence of Japanese troops, uh, of American troops in Japan. And in return for that, this massive U.S., you know, base the base presence in japan and okinawa in return for that japan got you know unfettered access to the american market and they were and also the japanese military even though it was kind of restored as so-called self-defense forces they weren't pouring in you know billions of dollars into making the military instead they they poured their you know, state treasure into building industries for export. And, uh, and they got this preference, you know, access to the U.S. market. And that, of course, began to create tensions uh, with the U.S., you know, by the, in the 60s, trade tensions. And, uh, you know, one of the, during, during the 70s, when President Nixon was running the United States, uh, there was a number of you know, uh, just a, a number of actions were taken by the U.S. to weaken the Japanese economy, mainly by uh, devaluing, devaluing the dollar, which made the yen much more, uh, it made things made with selling for yen much more expensive in export markets. And Nixon also opened up relations with China, which Japan had been prohibited from doing. And so there's been this really close relationship almost controlled by the U.S. government over Japanese foreign policy, you know, since since the end of the war. And Nippon Kaigi and these Abe and his LDP are all are all part of that. I, I often call them the most, you know, probably the the most pro-American uh, po- political party, obsequiously pro-American political party in the world. I want to come back to the whole. A uh, number of the issues around the so-called comfort girls, uh, the w- women dragooned to work in, uh, you know, basically in the brothels across the uh, greater co-prosperity sphere. Um, uh, Abi ha- was has been central, was central in um, the denialism around that whole issue. Uh, he denied the role of government coercion in the recruitment of the comfort women. Um, and in, in during his first stint as prime minister, he personally disavowed the 1993 Kano statement. Talk about the Kano statement, uh, and uh, in Abe's role, the uh, how Abe himself sparked controversy during that tenure. Well, yeah, that that statement, you know, recognized Japanese responsibility. To an extent, and it was it was it was quite a break from the past. Uh, but a lot of Japanese LDP and Abe and others did not like that that kind of acceptance of Japan's responsibility for that because it, it sort of you know blew up the whole like, their whole concept of Japan as this like, sort of 
progressive force in in, in Asia, and so they 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 really you know uh, there was this reaction uh, to 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 that. Um, but as as um, you know, the, the the key event for uh, dealing with the, the comfort women and the forced labor uh, for Japan was the. 1965 normalization treaty that was signed by South Korea under Park Chung-hee and and signed with uh, Japan by Sato Isaku, who was Kishi's brother, who succeeded Kishi. And this uh, normalization treaty, which was signed only after strenuous pressure by the various U.S. administrations, uh, it, uh, was passed in Korea you know, by a military dictator under martial law conditions. The, the opposition party was basically locked out of the Korean National Assembly when that was passed. And Japan saw that treaty as basically uh, ending any kind of dispute over comfort women and and you know, uh, forced labor. And uh, th- then in, in, uh, during the o- Obama administration, when, uh, you know, after South Korea became a democracy in the late 80s, uh, by its own doing, by its own people's doing, uh, people began to really, you know, question uh, the pro-Japanese nature of the previous governments and began to, demand redress for what had happened to men and women during during the war and so this all came to a head in recently uh under the the moon jae-in government a progressive government in south korea uh when uh, a, a lot of korean victims of the japanese wartime cruelties uh brought a lawsuit against some of the corporations who had uh, who had brought in their relatives and family members to work into made them into forced labor uh, a supreme Supreme Court of Korea you know said they could sue Japanese corporations and this Abe was prime minister at that time and this created a huge rift uh, with with Korea with the moon jae in government and uh, you know the Japanese side kept would insist Abe would insist you know the 65 treaty solved all that stuff you know that's all the past you, you shouldn't be breaking bringing this up again and uh, because it coincided with a big push by Obama and all Trump and now Biden to have a trilateral military alliance between Japan South Korea and the United States the U.S. really pushed to have an agreement on uh, a comfort women that would satisfy Koreans and keep South Korea in in this alliance. Uh, that agreement was was signed by Abe and the previous prime minister of South Korea, Park Geun-hye, who was impeached for corruption. But that agreement, when Moon Jae-in t- took over, they said that agreement... Uh, was null and void because, uh, for one thing, none of the women who were victims were even consulted. 
on on the money that was they were supposed to receive, and people just rejected it out of hand, and that's created a lot of tension that's still uh, very apparent between uh, South Korea, Japan. But unfortunately, our government, the U.S. government, has sided with Japan and Abe and the LDP in this dispute, and basically said, yes, we think this issue was resolved by the 65. Normalization Treaty in South Korea. You should just, you know, forget about bringing up all these issues and and let you know, let's proceed with our you know military buildup and military alliances. So, uh, you know, I I think that the United States government has been complicit in allowing Japan to escape responsibility for its war crimes. And of course, in some ways, they were you know totally complicit because they excluded a lot of people the u.s excluded a lot of people from being tried on war crimes uh for example the the unit that did medical experiments uh on american uh soldiers and chinese and all kinds of people uh during during world war ii uh the u.s wanted their information on biological warfare and other weapons they had developed and so they you know made sure that these people were not tried and there was no public trial of of their crimes so you know we've been complicit in letting japan sort of uh you know forget about this history and and just you know building them up as an as an ally instead of trying to resolve these very painful uh you know very very painful memories and uh, the suffering that people went through during World War II, which Abian is people just refused to recognize. Abi, of course, uh, Abi, of course, is a um, has been a believer in falsifying or denying the past. Uh, he's, uh, he's led this campaign, initiated a campaign to get history textbook publishers to revise their books, to reflect government policies, to eliminate terms such as comfort women uh, and sexual violence from social studies textbooks and so on. It, it rings so familiar to the right wing here in, in the States. Megan tells me that we do have um, a caller that wants to get in with a question or a comment. Hello, Don, you're on the line. Hello, Alan. Uh, thank you very much for the program and the information your guest is providing is uh, both fascinating and depressing. It's something I didn't know much of it, uh, and I'm sure many people here in the United States know absolutely nothing about this truth. Uh, my question for your guest is, what is the current state of opposition to the right-wing dominance in Japan? What is, what is the local Japanese opposition? What is it capable of doing to thwart this militarism and pro-nuclear stance and maybe turn the tide. And uh, thank you again for the program, and I will hang up and listen for the answer. Thanks, Caller. Well, that's, that's a very good question. Uh, the, the opposition is, is very divided. There are opposition parties, uh, including the Jap Communist Party of Japan. Uh, there's still a substantial you know, percentage of Japanese who, for example, do not want to have their constitution changed, do not want to have the peace clause of the constitution removed as Abe, that was Abe's dream. And Kishida, the new, the 
who's the current prime minister, has said since the election that happened a few days after Abe was assassinated, has said we're going to we're going to now try to push through this change to the Constitution. So the last time um, there was a, a, what they have, they haven't changed the Constitution, but they've they've sort of eroded it with various uh, new laws that allow Japanese forces to you know, the Japanese ships to accompany American military ships and overseas operations and, and, and things like that. They really tried to, you know, whittle it down. So uh, it's, but what's left is this language saying Japan will not, you know, mobilize a, a, a military force overseas uh, does not, you know, does not see war as a, a valid uh, way to go in, in world affairs, denouncing war and, and embracing peace. Um, and the last time, the last major change uh, that happened that happened in 2015, so seven years ago. And when that happened, there was the largest demonstrations in Japan, uh, peace demonstrations, anti-war demonstrations since the 1960s. So, you know, there's still a factor there, and I, I personally do not. I, I I don't I can't predict, but I, I I still think a majority of Japanese oppose uh, you know rejecting this this constitution, uh, which can only be it can only be removed the concept that language can only be removed if if the two thirds of the diet uh, both houses of the Japanese parliament upper house and lower house they have to approve it by a two thirds margin. And then it would go to a plebiscite by the Japanese people, by the Japanese voters. And um, I, I think it's it's about probably now it's about you know 50-50. Uh, uh, I think it would be a very difficult for them to actually get that through the Japanese population. Um, but you know that that remains to, that remains to be seen. But uh, the thing to remember about this drive to, uh, you know, make Japan a normal so-called military nation is that this, this has been pushed by the U.S., certain part, elements of the U.S. political system for years and years, uh, really since, you know, since the 19s, well, since the 1950s, since when they created the Japanese self-defense force and, and said they could do that under the, under the new constitution. And, uh, you know, Japan's become a, has its own military-industrial com- complex, and and they have they they make weapons, they make all kinds of things for for military use, and uh, a lot of Japanese corporations would like to, you know, expand expand that part of their their business, but this has been you know relentlessly pushed by the U.S. by both administrations, uh, you know, the I would say the center of the push has been this one think tank in Washington called the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, where uh, Richard Armitage, who was a uh, former high-level Pentagon official uh, and is very, very close to the Japanese right, I mean, he's one of the people that's really been pushing this and trying to, you know, make Japan into a military uh, power but always under the tutelage and under the control of the United States. Um, but it's, it's, it's not just a Japanese uh, proposal. It's, really, it's back 
by American politicians and officials, and uh, that's the unfortunate thing about it. And, and I think so much of this history is hidden is hidden from us. Um, but you know, uh, the, from, from what I just you know, I, I, I live in Washington, but I still have a lot of friends. In Japan, there's just still a substantial number of people that, you know, want to keep it a nation that renounces war as a, as a form of, uh, you know, power in, in world affairs. They would much prefer Japan to be, play a peaceful role. You know, Abe returned to a second stint uh, as prime minister in 2012. He was prime minister from 2012 to 2020. Uh but he campaigned under the slogans, take back Japan and restore national pride, a kind of equivalent of uh, make Japan great again. You know, Steve Bannon, the alt-right ideologue and former Donald Trump advisor, later described Abe as Trump before Trump. Um, one issue, of course, that has parallels here in this country was Abe's attempt to uh, censor and control the media. Uh, he was, he uh, waged his campaign of, against uh, for considerable control and influence over the media in Japan um, and campaigned as well or pushed for the strengthening of state secrets, the state secrets protection system to curtail freedom of speech and hamstring the press. What other parallels might you see uh, with, I mean, it's kind of a, a part, partly a, a worldwide phenomenon. That is, wherever these rightist regimes reside, uh, there's attempts to, uh, well, deny, deny history, rewrite history, uh, and uh, certainly control any opposition uh, in the press and so on. Well, I'll, you know, when Abe took, took, took over that year, 2012, this happened after three years under which Japan was ruled by a somewhat progressive government for the first time in like, you know, years and years and years. At the time, it was called the Democratic Justice Party. It's changed. It's changed and it's gone through some changes since then. But there was there was a number that party came to power, you know, in the early 1990s, there was a huge outcry in Japan about the abuse in Okinawa, abuse by American soldiers of Japanese Okinawan people in Okinawa near the bases, rapes, murders, you know, this created a crisis. And so the Japanese government of uh, this party, this, this opposition party that took over uh, with votes of Japanese, uh, you know, but with Japanese voters behind them, wanted to change the Cold War relationship between the U.S. and Japan. Uh, they, they wanted to get the U.S. Marines out of Okinawa, as the people there wished. Uh, and they also wanted to make uh, public many of the secret agreements between the U.S. and the LDP made over the years, such as the agreements to allow you know, nuclear uh, ships carrying nuclear weapons into Japanese ports. For years and years, they did this secretly with a secret agreement with the LDP, which if the Japanese people had known about it, would, would have erupted in massive demonstrations at the time when they were doing it. Uh, and so he came, he took over. Uh, and of course, the U.S., uh, first Bush, 
Obama administration put tremendous pressure on this opposition, you know, party when it was in, in control uh, and to, to force them, uh, you know, to stop from the, taking this position. And they basically, uh, you know, that that tension with the U.S. led to their collapse. And so it paved the way for Abe to come back as this, you know, I'm going to represent the real Japan. These people before were, you know, giving away, you know, uh, you know, we're destroying our relationship with the U.S., destroying our security relationship. I'm going to restore it and restore Japan's might. And there, there it's kind of similar to, to Trump. Uh, but, but, you know, he, he, as opposed to Trump, he wasn't like any kind of outsider to the political process. He was an insider from day one. So, uh, you know, I think I think Bannon's uh, comparison is is kind of way off base. They just, you know, they just people like him just love, you know, love right wingers. Uh, period. Um, you know, but but it's. I think I want what I want to emphasize to your listeners is this very very close relationship between the U.S. and Japan, Japan rightists and militarists, and and you know. One of the things that's kind of astonishing about Japan is, is it's, it's very hard. I, I find it very hard to call them a sovereign country when you when American helicopters and planes have free reign to Japanese skies. There are, there have been newspaper reports in the mainstream Japanese press over the last two years about American helicopters that are constantly flying very low over Tokyo. No. Japanese helicopters or planes are allowed to do that, but U.S. helicopters do it at will. And and there's pictures of them flying, you know, really low over Tokyo. Can you imagine, uh, you know, Americans in like New York City or Chicago, any major city putting up for one day of, you know, foreign helicopters having more rights than American helicopters on your own soil? It's, it's it's kind of amazing, really, when you think about it. But they, when I say pro-America, that's what I mean. They will bend as far as you possibly, they possibly can to put up with, you know, American demands. And, you know, in Okinawa, where the people have, you know, voted and shown year after year they want the U.S. Marines out, the, the, uh, the LDP has you know, crushed, you know, it's just gone ahead with, you know, letting the U.S. Marines build a, building a, a new base for the U.S. Marines in Okinawa uh, and just has overlooked, you know, any kind of opposition. They, they've denied the people of Okinawa any, any chance of democracy. And so, you know, our military alliance there is based on people being denied the right to, to their land. In, in Okinawa, and uh, you know, I think I think a lot of Japanese do do resent that. It's it's just very hard to speculate on you know how things will unfold with especially with this you know peace constitution coming up. But I would just say that you know basically it's a very it's a fairly fairly conservative government, a fairly conservative population, uh, and you know certainly in contrast to when I was living there, and you know through the late 60s. There's just no comparison. 
I want to, uh, we just have but a few minutes left. There's so much we could uh, talk about. But I wanted to get to, you know, the, this assassination. That is, following Abe's assassination last Friday, reports soon surfaced that uh, Tetsuya Yamagami, the man who shot him, told police he had targeted Abe due to his ties to the Unification Church, uh, that the church had built the assailant's mother off the f- of, of the um, family savings uh, and, and forced her into bankruptcy. Do you have any any deep story of what that uh, deep deeper sense of what that story is about? Uh, it's fairly well known, of course, that uh, the Unification Church founder Sun Myung Moon had a, was a rabid anti-communist with deep ties to the far right in Japan. Right, and he had he had deep ties to the far right in in Korea too, and the, all those Japanese collaborators I mentioned who made up a lot of the early governments in South Korea. So, um, I mean, the, it, the information is now, it's, it's just coming out, but, but I think, you know, these relationships with the Unification Church are, it's part of the sort of dark side of Japanese politics. It's sort of underneath the radar screen much, much of the time. And, you know, the Japanese press as a whole has been very, you know, sheepish, basically, about covering things like that. I mean, it took it took days and days before they would even even mention the Unification Church. They would just kept calling it a certain religious organization. These euphemisms, instead of saying what it was, I think I think it was an American newspaper, the Washington Post, that first made the connection public. You know that this was the Unification Church at issue. Um, so it's kind of surprising that it hasn't come out that much in Japan, but. You know, these are part of these, you know, age-old relationships I've been talking about, these ties between, you know, the the LDP leadership and the, and the LDP rank and file in the, Jap- in the right wing in South Korea, uh, going back, you know, to the period of, of uh, military dictatorship that lasted until, you know, the 1980s, late 1980s in South Korea. So it's really no surprise. It's just, it's just, the, the 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 extent of these ties, I mean, Abe, you know, spoke at some big unification church uh, event a couple of years ago, and he, he and other members of his group within LDP are known to have these long-standing ties. You know, as do I mean, President when Trump was president, he spoke to the unification church too, and they brought all kinds of people over and tried to make themselves look like some kind of like legitimate. A political group um, but these these are just it's part of the hidden history that most americans are you know are, are unaware of because it just has not been you know covered uh in the u.s press i mean you have to i mean you you sent me you know that article from the new york times from i think it was 1994 when the times finally broke the story of the millions of dollars that the U.S. secretly spent to build up the LDP in the in the early 1950s, um, but there's very little, you know, coverage about that since, and and it's just it's just not it's just not really talked about, um, you know, how Japan was this virulent, you know, under the LDP, it's virulent supporters of the U.S. in Vietnam, uh, Japanese corporations profited from the Vietnam War, just like they did from the Korean War. And it's a sordid relationship that's been 
hidden from hidden from the American people and the and the American voter behind these you know these slogans of you know Abe was this great democratic figure that's what Hillary Clinton said and you know you can read all these people like uh, saying almost the same thing from the far right to the liberal left in American politics, that their statements on Abe are almost the same. And it's very disconcerting to see that because so much of this history, you can find it if you look for it, but it's not talked about very much. I mean, the Times never really followed up on that story from the 90s. This is dropped, okay, here's this big story about the LDP getting money, but what's the connection to today and what the policies are? There's, that, that connection is not made. So Tim I think Shurik, the American have been done as a disservice. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, unfortunately, we're right down to the end of the wire. Okay. I want you to uh, f- you know, close up perhaps by telling uh, our listeners uh, how they might uh, follow you, uh, how to maybe uh, read some of your writings. Way, well, the best way is on uh, my my website, which is uh, Timothy. Tim, it's Tim, TimShorock.com pretty simple t-i-m-s-h-o-r-r-o-c-k.com and uh also i'm on twitter a lot at timothy s and i actually post a lot about i've been posting a lot about this and um my my website is is being rebuilt as we speak uh and there's a lot of my um material uh about all this can be found there i'm also writing a book about U.S. intervention in Japan and Korea since 1945. I don't have a publisher yet, but I'm pretty confident I'll get one, and uh, that's my big project now. Got to let you go. Uh, Tim Shurock, thank you ever so much. Uh, I want to thank Megan, our engineer, Rochelle, our producer. I've been your host for the summer. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. <laughs>